covering the book of Acts is, is no small feat. I'm being waved at. Oh, work day. When is that again? When is it? January the 9th, Bobby will be here working. If you look around, <laughs> if you look around the floor, it needs to get cleaned. Uh, everybody's looking at the floor. Ooh, don't look at the floor. Uh, the floor needs to get clean, and we're probably gonna clean it and maybe do some touch-up painting on it and just kind of clean and tidy around here as well. So that'll be, uh, let's come help Bobby out. What day would that be? January the 9th. January the 9th, what time? Eight to noon, eight to noon, January 9th. We'll put that on your calendars. I think that's a Sunday, right? Yes. We'll be here and we'll be cleaning up the floors. We'll have to stack these chairs and whatnot. So we'll get this place looking a little bit better. Swab the deck. Swab the deck, as Marvin said. Yep, exactly. So Acts 2 was last week, and I tried to take you guys through this very heavy chapter, a very dense chapter. And Luke writes some long chapters for us, doesn't he? But I wanted to ask you guys some questions before I do, though. I want you guys to tell me, if you were here last week, raise your hand, shook your hand, or if you were watching a live stream, what, no, what is one thing you learned? Raise your hand if you're willing to tell me one thing you learned. Let me just see your hand, or just shout it out. I'm in middle school mode here. One thing you learned last week. Anybody? Uh-oh. It's been a long week, hasn't it? Yes, Tanya. Yeah. Actually, that's what Good, thank you. So she's saying when they were at the base of Mount Sinai, the people of Israel were there at Sinai receiving the Torah, that it said they heard the voices, but could be translated as languages, and they saw the torches. And then fast forward fifteen hundred years on that same day. There are languages, and then there are torches above everyone's head, right? And this connection there, this the anniversary, and then the Torah through the giving of the Holy Spirit is written on our hearts, right? And uh, yeah, very good point. Anybody else have a, a fact they'd like to share that they learned last week? Yeah, Carrie. I can't remember now. I'm getting my weeks Martyrs, yeah. Yeah, that was Acts 1. Yeah, you will be my martyrs even to the end of the earth. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Good point. Anybody else have something they want to add? Last week you learned. Okay, let me ask you a question now. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Who wrote the Gospel of Luke? Yeah, who wrote most of the New Testament? Luke did. Yeah, if we go by sheer volume, Luke is the, the bulk of it, right? On what day is the events of Acts 2 primarily taking place? Yeah, a well-established Torah holiday called Shavuot, or what we might call in Greek Pentecost, the 50th, okay? Some people think, unfortunately, that this is a new Christian holiday. Pentecost is like a new thing. No, it was already around for 1,500 years. It was the anniversary of the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. Somebody tell me um, about how many people were added to the number of believers that day. 3,000. Let's zip back to Mount Sinai 1,500 years prior. How many were taken away? 3,000. Yeah, and Luke is saying what we're witnessing here is an undoing of the Tower of Babel. When the languages were scattered and confused, now God is bringing them back together and he's restoring what, he'd, what he did in the Tower of Babel. Not only that, but he's infusing the Torah into the heart of man through the Holy Spirit, through the Ruach HaKodesh. 
where it is being inscribed on the heart of man to where he will just be compelled to want to do the things of the scriptures. Good. All right, that's our Acts review. I found, this came up in my memories today, uh, or actually not today, during the week it came up. This is a photo I took of a light pole in Jerusalem. But what do you notice? And I, I walked by this thing and I had to do a double take. I walked by and I looked at it and it was like a piece of graffiti on it. And I was like, wait, wait, wait a second. And I went back and I looked at it. For those who don't know, this is Aleph Sheen. And what does that spell? Aish. What does Aish mean? Fire. What's above his head? A little tongue of fire. He's a Hasidic Jew, presumably. Someone just, you know, used like a, a marker and drew this on there. But I was looking at it. I mean, I'm probably still there for 15 minutes staring at this little thing. I'm like, wait a second. This is like Acts 2. So what does it mean? No idea. But I thought it was really interesting that there's this concept within the Hasidic world that there is fire above someone's head. Maybe if they're super pious or righteous, I don't know. But maybe you could research that for me and maybe I could light a fire in you to want to discover what that photo means. Maybe it was done in 2000, I don't know. You know, 2,000 years ago. They maybe 2,000 years old, yeah. Yeah, they had a whiteout back then in the history. Yeah. Well, let's jump into Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And teaching through an entire chapter of Acts in a week is no small feat. We got a lot of material we're going to cover here. We're going to do our best to cover it. But Acts, I'm sorry, Isaiah 35, Yeshayahu 35. This is written 800 years before the time of Messiah. This is, these, these prophetic oracles of Isaiah are floating around in the imagination and in the theology and in the messianic expectations of Jews in the first century. You got me? So as you read Isaiah 35, I want you to read it as if you're someone who is a first century Jewish worshiper living in the land of Israel. And you're being occupied by the Romans, and there seems to be little hope for your people at this point, and your national uh, uh, independence at this point. But Isaiah says in, in chapter 35, the desert and the dry land will be made glad. The arava, which is like a wilderness, will rejoice and blossom like the lily. It will burst into flower and will rejoice with singing and joy. It will be given the glory of Lebanon. Will be given the glory of Lebanon, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of Adonai, the splendor of our God. Strengthen your drooping arms. Steady your tottering knees. Say to the faint-hearted, be strong and unafraid. Here is your God. He will come with a vengeance. With God's retribution, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf, they will be unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer. And the mute person's tongue will sing. For in the desert, springs will burst forth. Streams of water in the Arava. The sandy mirage will, come, will become a pool. The thirsty ground, springs of water. The haunts where jackals lie down will become a marsh filled with reeds and papyrus. A highway will be there. A way. Called the way of holiness. What was one of the names of our movement in the book of Acts? The way. The way. The unclean will not pass over it, but it will be for those whom he guides. Fools will not stray along it. No, no lion or beast of prey will be there traveling on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will go there. The ransomed by the Lord will return and come with singing to Zion. On their heads will be everlasting joy. They will acquire gladness and joy while sorrow and sighing will flee. 
Ezekiel 36, we've got to remember, is another prophetic passage that's circling around in the minds and the imagination and the theology of a first century Jew. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to carefully observe my ordinances. Then you will live in the land that I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. Do you see the expectation that's kind of being created here by the prophets? That when the Mashiach, when the Messiah comes, this amazing time of peace and obedience and reconciliation and regathering will begin upon his arrival. Do you see that forming? You can almost kind of feel that it's palpable in the air when you read these passages and you, you can go right outside the synagogue door and there are Roman, legion, Roman soldiers walking by, cavalry on horseback right there in your street, right? But you know when Messiah comes, he will set the captives free. He will put a new spirit in us. He will cause us to obey. And in order to really do a good job teaching Acts chapter 3, we have to be familiar with this place. This is the Beit Hamikdash. This is a photo I took in September of 2018. And these are IDF soldiers standing here on a sidewalk. And this is their commander. And she's giving these IDF soldiers a lesson about the Torah, or a lesson about the, the temple. And this is a, I think, a half acre model of the temple in the city of Jerusalem as it stood in the first century. Isn't that amazing? It's right there at the um, Israel Museum in Jerusalem. But here is the Eastern Gate. And not many people get to walk through that gate. It is, in Judaism, understood that the Mashiach, when he comes, will walk through that gate and be coronated as king. Then as you proceed, you have this gate here, and then you have this gate here. You have a total of three gates that are gonna face east. Then you have about a 36 acre plateau called the Temple Mount. To the north, the northwest, is the Antonia Fortress. That is a Roman barracks where Roman soldiers are living and they're observing and watching for any sort of civil unrest. Then to the south, you have what's called Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Portico. These are stairways that are coming up and entrances coming up from down below. Over here, further to the south, you have the Southern Steps. Back behind us to the west, you have the new city of Jerusalem. These are kind of like the suburbs of Jerusalem that were built within the first century. You have the upper city, which is primarily where the wealthy are going to live. Caiaphas, the high priest, his house is about right here. Then you have the lower city down here, where people, low, lower um, class people are going to be living. So let's go now to Acts chapter three, and let's see if we can piece some of this geography and then piece in some of these messianic expectations into our reading and better understand what we are about to read. Acts 3. So Pentecost happened, speaking in, in these different languages, tongues happened. And it says at the end of chapter 2, and day after day the Lord kept adding to them those who were being saved. It's like everything is going hunky-dory at this point, right? And it says one afternoon at what time? Three o'clock. The hour of, what does it say there? Prayer. As Peter and John were going up to the temple. Now let's pause here. Because we got to back up and understand why are Peter and John going up to the temple? 
This could come, this is probably a month or more, at least a month, after Yeshua has died, buried, was resurrected, and ascended. Why are they going to the temple? Maybe to pass out tracts? Gospel tracts, maybe? To pass out Gideon's New Testament? They're going to the temple to pray. Wait a second, you might think. Why are they going to the temple to pray? Because that's the center of the Jewish universe. Yeah, there's sacrifices that are going on. There's tamid offerings going on day and night there. But also it becomes a house of prayer, right? It is a house of prayer for all nations. We have to kind of get into that mindset that the temple was, was yes, a place of sacrifice, but also very much a place of Torah learning and teaching, but prayer. So as they're going up there, they're still observant Jews. They haven't you know, become like Baptists or anything like that. They're still religious, observant Jews. But you've got to think, First Kings, Solomon says the following. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, such as the Romans, and when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplications to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of people and bring them back to the land that you gave their ancestors. This is in the imagination. This is, keep saying that. This is, this is the forefront of their, their religious minds. Go to the temple and pray. Repent of sins in the temple. God will hear our prayers. He will redeem our people. He will restore our land. So yeah, they're still observant. Why, why, why else? I mean, why wouldn't they go to the temple? It's still the, the center of their universe. But why the hour of the prayer? And what is the hour of the prayer? How many of you have the prayer in your translation? Anybody have the prayer? Nobody? Hour of prayer? Okay, nobody has the prayer. Okay. Okay, it's okay if you don't. The hour of prayer. And what time is that? Three o'clock. Okay, three o'clock. So what is this? I think it, it demands us. You have the prayer? Minka prayer. We have Howard. The ninth hour. Yeah. Some of you are going to have three. Some of you are going to have ninth hour. Yeah. Well, let's give a kind of a crash course on these prayer times because you're all coming from various backgrounds. None of you, as far as I knew, grew up in observant Judaism where you observe these prayer times from a very young age. So the Jewish day is divided into these quadrants here where you have, I know it's probably very hard to see, you have sunrise, you have the third hour, you have the sixth hour, and you have the ninth hour, and then you have four watches between at night. We're only going to focus on the daytime here. But the day was divided up into three prayer times, one corresponding to the morning tamid offering that was brought every morning. Then you have one corresponding to the afternoon tamid offering, corresponding to what the Levites are doing in the afternoon. And then there's an evening prayer when they would burn up the remnants of that day's sacrifices on the altar. So every time that there is a Levite burning something on the altar, there are Jews around the world that are praying at that exact moment the formulated prayers. Does that make sense? And it corresponds to something going up on the altar because Hosea says that our prayers are the bulls of our lips. So we might not be able to be there next to the altar and be part of that experience, but we can pray at the same time that the Levites would have been doing that. So now that there is no altar, now that there is no temple, all we have left are the prayers. Make sense? And we have the prayers at those particular times. But how many of you remember what was going on in the heavenly, what was going on in the earthly temple is a reflection of what was going on in the heavenly realm. So that's still going on. You got me? And actually, uh, the Jewish thought process is that the, the earthly temple is like a mirror, it's like a, a mirror reflection of 
and exactly below the heavenly temple, okay? So what I did, I did all the work for you already. You don't have to go through your Bibles, but I wanted to see what transpired at these prayer times throughout the Bible. Is there anything to these prayer times? You know, in the book of Daniel, for instance, it says Daniel opened his window towards Jerusalem and he prayed three times a day as was his custom. But Daniel did this, but I wanna see 1 Kings 18 at the sixth hour, which corresponds to about, you know, early afternoon, early afternoon. You could say noon, middle of the day. Elijah taunts the false prophets. And then at the ninth hour, three hours later, Elijah calls down fire on the altar, corresponding to those prayer times. Are there any more? Luke 1, verse 10. At the third hour, Zechariah is in the temple, and there he receives a vision and a promise from the angel Gabriel that he'll have a son. He's to name him John the Baptist, right? At the third hour. What about this? John 4, 6. It says at the sixth hour, Yeshua was speaking with the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman. Interesting, right? What about this? Mark 15, 24. Do you guys know that Yeshua uh, dies or at least speaks and then dies and gives up his last breath at these prayer times? The third hour, Yeshua is nailed to the cross. He's actually executed at the, the time of the, of the Shakari prayers. And then uh, here, all these gospels say the sixth hour through the ninth hour is when darkness came over the land. And then Mark, Matthew and Mark say at the ninth hour is when Yeshua utters up, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies at the time of the Ma'ariv, at the evening sacrifice, is when he dies. Did you know that? That's pretty important. And, you know, as disciples of him, we should know that his, what, it, what transpires on the cross corresponds and lines up perfectly with those three prayer times. Okay. So then we have, fast forward to Acts 2. Remember, we talked about this last week. And what time was it that the Holy Spirit descended on them? The third hour. So they're up there praying at one of these designated prayer times. At the very moment Yeshua is nailed to the cross, you know, after his ascension, obviously, but they're, they're, they're overlaying, they're, they're praying at that same time. You know, many days later, obviously. But the Levites, as this is transpiring, the Levites are in the temple Offering up the morning Tamid offering. And then finally we get to Acts 3. They're going up to the temple to pray at what hour? The ninth hour. The ninth hour. You gotta believe that they remember the, the history and the legends of Israel, where, you know, what else happened on the ninth hour? Well, I remember, you know, the ninth hour, Elijah calls down fire on the altar, right? They, you gotta, you gotta believe that they, they're aware of that. The ninth hour, Yeshua dies. Their rabbi, their master, dies at the ninth hour, and here they are walking up to the temple. Are there any more? Acts ten three. At the ninth hour, Cornelius receives his vision in Acts chapter ten, and then at the sixth hour, Peter receives his vision. Both of them are praying at those times. If you go back and read the stories, they're observing these prayer times. Kind of interesting, right? It was for me when it was, it was kind of a revelation for me to, to realize that. Well, so what is prayed at these prayer times? Because it's important we understand that. If Peter and John are walking up to the temple at the hour of prayer, what are they about to go up and pray? I want to know that. So I dug into history a little bit, and I, I realized, or I learned that they're going to pray kind of a skeleton form of the liturgical prayers right here. At the very minimum, this is what they are going to pray. They're going to pray the Shema, 
They're going to pray the Amidah, that prayer we just prayed a little while ago. And in fact, in Judaism, to say the prayer is a code word for the Amidah. The Amidah prayer is the center, it's like the soul of all Jewish prayer. So if you're going to pray as a Jew, you're going to say the Amidah, okay? Then they would probably say the Kaddish, the priestly blessing. They would, hear, they would actually hear the priest say the priestly blessing. The priest would come out at the conclusion of the prayer service and they would say it. I, I've, been for, I've been to Shakari prayers in Jerusalem at the Western Wall, at the base of the Temple Mount, and they did that exact thing. They, at the end of Shakarit prayers, it was a bunch of young men, uh, a bunch of Kohanim, a bunch of priests. They came up to the front and put their backs to the Western Wall. They put their prayer shawls on, and then they faced everybody that was there praying, and they go, Yivarechacha, and then everyone repeated back, Yivarechacha, Adonai, Adonai. They did that in the Shakarit prayers. And I was like, this is so cool. These are actually like Kohanim. These are actually priests that are praying the blessing over me right now. It was a very moving experience, actually. They'd also pray um, the Nishmat prayer, which some speculate Peter himself actually composed. Interesting, right? So that's kind of what they would pray. I hope this gives you a better understanding as Peter and John are approaching the beautiful gate, what they're going to do, what time they're going to do it, and what might happen within the gates of the temple. I hope that better elucidates it for you. So Acts 3.2, let's get there. Look, we're only one verse in. We've got to speed it up, don't we? It said a man crippled from birth was being carried in. Every day, people used to carry him and put him at the beautiful gate of the temple so that he could beg from those going into the temple court. So let's pause here. Why? Why is this happening? Well, according to the Mishnah, Kelim 1.8, nobody with an issue of any kind was allowed into the temple mount. Although the lame man need not have, uh, have had an issue, his infirmity may put him in the category where he was not permitted into the temple courts, according to the Mishnah. So this begs the question, at which gate is he begging? You know there's not a shred of evidence that tells us where the beautiful gate actually is. We, no one knows exactly which gate is beautiful. You know, there's, there's um, several gates to this temple complex right here. And all of them today are completely sealed up. And most of them, if not all of them, go by multiple names. So talk about driving an archaeologist, absolutely crazy. So it's hard for us to pinpoint which one is the beautiful gate. It could be the eastern gate, but I, I don't know because that's, that's not where there's a lot of foot traffic going through the eastern gate on an average day. It's mainly reserved for the priests to go in and out. There's this right here, which would be the Nicanor gate. Could that be it? Well, no, he can't. Potentially, he cannot get up on top of this complex because he's lame from birth. So where could it be? It could be one of these gates out here. You have uh, Wilson's Arch and Robinson's Arch. You have this right here. This is the Holda Gate. You have the double gate and the triple gate. These are the southern steps. This is my favorite theory. I think that he's sitting on these southern steps right here. Why do I think that? Because I believe that that's where the majority of the foot traffic is going to come through and enter through the temple, is through the southern steps. Okay? It's very significant, too, because this is where you sing the Hallel after Passover right here as well. Could it be the Jaffa Gate? Jaffa does mean beautiful in Hebrew. No, it can't, because this gate is only about 480 years old. So we've got to rule that one out. I think it's the southern gate right here. 
I think it's the southern steps and the southern gate where this man is sitting. Peter and John are walking up here, up the southern steps, and they're about to enter this gate. I really like this theory as well because we can see those gates still to this day. Here are the southern steps. So let's go back to my picture. Here are the southern steps, what it probably looked like in the first century. And here they are today. Now look, if you can see it close enough, there is the triple gate right there. And the double gate is out of this frame that's over here. But there's the gates. Now, if you were to go into these gates, the Mishnah describes that these gates, the ceiling of them inside, had these beautiful, ornate mosaics all down the inside of these, these tunnels as they lead up into the temple complex, thus making them beautiful. Could they have been called the beautiful gates? Potentially. But it's not worth fighting over. It's not worth dividing over. But I like to picture it happening right here, this story. So he's sitting there. And Peter and John walk up. And this guy who's been sitting there for what we're going to learn is about 40 years, give or take. He sees these two men approaching, right? Probably tons and tons of people coming in and out of the prayer, time of prayer. In verse 3, it says, When he saw Kepha and John, Peter and John, about to enter, he asked them for some money. But why is he asking money? Why is he sitting here at the temple begging? You know, um, in the Jewish theological world, it's so important you understand the Jewish roots of the book of Acts in the, in the, in the New Testament. Because in the Jewish understanding of prayer... If you give tzedakah, if you give charity before you pray, it makes your prayers more effective. Do you know that? Yeah. In many synagogues you walk into, you'll see a tzedakah box like that. So as you come in the door, you give tzedakah, you give charity. Tzedakah just means like charity or alms. You give charity, and then you go and you pray. And that makes your prayers more effective to God. And... You might be thinking, wait a second, is that really? No, like the, the Mishnah says every man in Israel is obligated to study the Torah, whether he's poor or rich, whether he's physically healthy or ailing. Let's get that slide for the second time. The Talmud says, he who gives a small coin to a man obtains six blessings, and he who addresses to him words of comfort obtains 11 blessings. He who gives a small coin to a poor man obtains six. It is written, it is not to deal thy bread to the hungry and bring the poor to thy house, etc., when thou seest the naked, etc., the Babylonian Talmud also says um, that the commandment to give charity is considered equivalent to all the other commandments in the Torah. Great is tzedakah, great is charity, for it brings the redemption. As it is said, Zion shall be redeemed through tzedakah, or through justice, and her penitent through tzedakah. Giving charity before prayer is a vital Jewish concept, according to the Talmud. The Talmud says, the ways of God are not like the ways of mortals. How is it among humans? If a man brings a gift to a king, it might be accepted or it might not be accepted. Even if it is accepted by the king, it is still doubtful whether the king will admit him into the presence or not. Not so with Hashem, with God. If a person gives but a small coin to a beggar, he is deemed worthy to receive the divine presence. This is in the Talmud, right? And it says in the Talmud that Rabbi Eliezer used to give a coin to a poor man and then immediately begin to pray. It's interesting, right? So these Jews are thinking like that. That's why if, you, if you're going to really capitalize as a beggar, your ideal vantage point, the, the best place to sit and get that money is right before people are going to pray. And where do people go to pray? In the temple. So you sit at the temple steps and you beg. And it makes sense. Everybody, you know, it's tit for tat, right? 
Is there anything to that? Oh, this is a modern picture. And if you approach the Temple Mount today, there are beggars still to this day. And you take a couple shlechim, shekelim, and you put them in a plastic cup. They hold a plastic cup and you, you pop them in there. But this is, a, this is a beggar to this day. And he's looking at this young Jewish boy here as he's passing by. But they sit all around the base of the Temple Mount. Is there anything to this though? Or is this just the rabbis overthinking things? Is there anything to it? What do you guys think? Giving alms before you pray, does that make your prayers more effective? Um, here's Psalm 1715. As for me, I shall see your face, God, in sadaka, in charity. Interesting, right? What about this? Acts 1031. Cornelius answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this. The ninth hour. Suddenly a man in radiant clothing stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your what? Your gifts to the poor have been remembered before God. It's interesting. So Cornelius was practicing this. He was giving to the poor and then praying. Something connected there, isn't it? Now, if you actually look, um, I think it's the Rambam, the medieval rabbi, actually created a list of the levels of tzedakah that you can give. The highest form of tzedakah is to give to someone to enable them to become self-sufficient. The lowest form is walking along the street and you give someone a coin without knowing them, without knowing what they're going to do with that, without even thinking about them, without offering any kind of words of comfort. That's the lowest form of tzedakah. But there's like eight levels of tzedakah, I believe it is. So here he is right here. Peter and John are walking up. He's begging there at the temple steps. Let's continue reading. We left up at verse 3. When Kepha, or Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. But they, started, they stared straight at him. And Peter said, look at us. The crippled man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I don't have silver and I don't have gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Messiah, Yeshua of Netzeret, stand up and walk. Got a picture of this guy has been lame for 40 years. And they're going into the beautiful gate up to the temple to pray the prayer. What is the prayer? The standing prayer. The prayer, the center prayer in all of Jewish, Jewish world at that time. And taking a hold of him by the right hand, Peter pulled him up. And instantly his feet and ankles became strong so that he sprang up and he stood a moment and began walking. And then he entered the temple court with them, walking and leaping and praising God. What does this remind us of? Isaiah 35. The lame will leap with joy, right? The fulfillment of that is happening right before their eyes. Everyone saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the same man who had formerly sat begging at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were utterly amazed and confounded at what had happened. While they, uh, he clung to Peter and John, all the people came running in astonish astonishment to them in Solomon's colonnade. This is maybe an, an artist's rendition of what Solomon's colonnade would have looked like there. Seeing this, Peter addressed the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as if we've made this man walk through some power of our godliness? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What does that remind you of? Hello? Uh, what is the, um, the end of the Amidah, the end of the, the Avot? The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The Most High God has glorified his servant Yeshua. 
the same Yeshua you handed over and disowned before Pilate, even after he decided to release him, you denied the holy and innocent one, and instead of asked for, a, a, for the reprieve of a murderer, you killed the author of life. But God has raised him from the dead. Of this we are witnesses, and it is through putting trust in his name that his name has given strength to this man whom you see and know. Yes, it is the trust that comes through Yeshua which has given him this perfect healing in the presence of you all. Now, brothers, I know you did not understand the significance of what you were doing. Neither did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had announced in advance when he spoke through all the prophets, namely that his Messiah had to die. So there we have, he's saying this is fulfillment of Isaiah 35, of Ezekiel 36, of Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. Therefore, repent and turn to God so that your sins can be erased, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord's presence. That reminds me of Isaiah 35 as well. Those times of refreshing, right? Streams and deserts. He has to remain in heaven until the time comes for the restoration of all things, restoring everything. As God said long ago, when he spoke through the holy prophets, for Moses himself said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me among your brothers. You are to listen to everything he tells you. Now, wait a second. What is the restoration of all things that he's talking about here? So, in other words, we have a hint. Yeshua is going to stay in heaven until God restores all things. What does that mean? Because if we can figure that out, we can figure out when he's returning, right? Well, Isaiah 126. Let me try to paint. A paint a very large and very detailed picture in your mind in the short amount of time that I have. Isaiah 126 says, speaking of the messianic era, I will restore the judges as at first and your counselors as the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Malachi 3 says, he shall sit as a refiner and purify silver, the purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering of righteousness. Paul in Romans 8 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So the restoration of all things, if I could really condense it down in a, in a, in a nutshell for you, which I hate doing because it's such a big concept, is it's a massive reversal of the curses that we brought on ourselves. Through God's working of the Holy Spirit and regenerating us one at a time. Remember, we're like little lights. We're like little torches that are going out. When we lit the lights of Hanukkah this year, we talked about the light should spread. It should be contagious. We should light each other up with the love of Yeshua. You got me? And that act right there is the beginning. We're like little cogs in a wheel that is the restoration of all things. You got me? And it's back to this Edenic state of God, God restoring mankind back to himself. He's not going to force us back from exile. He's going to call us back from exile and invite us back from exile and, and plead with us that we come. Here's more restoration. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. That's Isaiah 65. Isaiah 66 from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me. Psalm 102. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, though, you will change them, and they will be discarded. 
Do you get the picture a little bit here? In other words, all of humanity is going to bow down and worship the one true God. Where? In his holy city. In Jerusalem. Right? In Zechariah 14 talks about nations that don't come up to Jerusalem, they won't get any rain on their land. So you got to think, these, these guys, Peter and John, this is absolutely in their minds. That the restoration of all things, the, the, it's gonna be the, the epicenter is going to be the city of Jerusalem and the temple, the very place where they are standing. And here they, they're a small part of that. They take a man who's been lame from birth and allow him to go into the presence with them. Allow him to walk into the house of God with them for the first time in his entire life. They're like a small piece of that restoration, that tikkun olam, that repair of the world. Let's go to verse 23. Because he invokes Deuteronomy 18 here. He says, For Moses himself said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. He's quoting Deuteronomy 18. You are to listen to everything he tells you. Everyone who fails to listen to that prophet will be removed from my people and destroyed. And here is Deuteronomy 18. It says, and I will hold accountable anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So who is Peter here saying the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 is? Yeshua. Yeah, he's saying Yeshua is the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18. Listen to him or you will be destroyed. Verse 24 says, indeed, all the prophets announced these days, starting with Samuel and continuing through all who followed. You got to remember, Peter does not have a bunch of copies of Gideon's New Testament that he can just pass out to everybody. Here, guys, read this. Learn about Yeshua, what he did, and how he fulfilled the prophecies. Peter, what is he doing? He's perpetually and, and habitually invoking the prophets and the themes of the prophets. What did he do in Acts 2? Same exact thing. Why are you guys amazed? Don't you know Joel 3? He'll pour out his spirit in the, in the last days on all flesh. Young men will prophesy and see dreams, right? He's invoking the prophets because he doesn't have, well, let's go to the book of Acts and see, is this supposed to happen? He doesn't have that, right? He's, he, is, he is living out the book of Acts. It's a very important skill I think we should have as well, that we can go to the prophets and we can say, this is why Yeshua had to die. This is why he had to resurrect. This is why, you know, that's, this is, we can fill in all the blanks with the prophets. It's easy to fall back and default to the New Testament in the pages of the New Testament and say, yeah, he did this, he did that. But where is it prophesied? Because if it could be prophesied and then it come to pass, that means the, per the person who wrote this book and prophesied those things has to be outside of space and time and therefore is omniscient, omnipotent, and all, you know, he's, he is the creator. So we can prove that, then, you know what I'm saying? It, I think it really helps you apolog apologetically to be able to do that. But verse 25, let's go there and we're going to wrap up here with these last couple verses the very big concept with these last we're going to open up a very big concept with these last couple verses here he says to these onlookers you are the sons of the prophets and you are included in the covenant which god made with our fathers when he said to avraham he said the following genesis 12 he's about to quote by your seed with all the families of the earth be blessed so it is to you First, that God has sent his servant, whom he raised up, so that he might bless you by turning each one of you from your evil ways. So let's pause here because this is a very big concept. He is saying, you onlookers who just saw this man get healed, 
you're the sons of Abraham. And remember, God told Abraham back in the book of Rashid in Genesis that through you, through you, you as Jews, as Israelites standing here, God's going to bless all the nations of the world. How? How, do, how, how, how are all, all the nations going to be blessed through Abraham? We can speculate. We can say, well, you know, Christianity spread, Abrahamic faith spread, you know, Islam or whatever. Maybe, I don't know. It's kind of conflicting, you know. Like, I don't know that Islam is really blessing the earth, to be honest with you. Christianity, maybe Judaism, maybe. Yeah, I think, but you can't say that per se. Maybe monotheism is blessing the earth, but I don't, I don't know. It's hard to really figure out how is Abraham blessing the earth? Well, we can, we can break this verse down a little bit and figure it out. Here's Genesis 12, 2-3. I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples of the earth will be, and it uses the word here, the nivrahu. It's an agricultural word, which means to be grafted into or mixed together with. It's this right here. Ve-ni-re-hu. It's this idea of grafting or attaching to. Now, what happens in agriculture is you take a wild root or sometimes a cultivated root of a fruit tree and you graft a wild or a cultivated uh, top onto it. If you go to Lowe's and you look at all the fruit trees at Lowe's, down towards the root, there will be like a little place where you can see where they grafted that tree onto it. They like that hardy root, but then the fruit of the cultivated tree. So when God says this to Abraham, Abraham's mind goes to, his mind goes to, wait, all the families of the earth will be mixed into my family? It's interesting. How is that going to be possible? And, and thus fulfilling his, the idea of his descendants being as numerous as the stars of the sky. Where else do we see this language? Let me pass these verses out real quick with what time we have. Brian, will you take Isaiah 56, 1 through 8? Bob, I'm going to give you John 10, 16. Um, Miss Joanne, I'm going to give you Ephesians 2 up there, 11 through 22. And then let me give somebody else who's looking up there. Maybe take a verse. Megan from Devar Torah. I'm going to give you Romans 11, 11 through 24. Or you can pass it to somebody else if you want. Just somebody in the front row would be good. Okay, Brian, you got it? Read it nice and loud if you don't mind. Here's what Adonai says. Observe justice. Do what is right. For my salvation is close to coming. My righteousness is being revealed. Happy is the person who does this. Anyone who grasps it firmly, who keeps Shabbat and does not profane it, and keeps himself from doing any evil. A foreigner joining Adonai should not say, Adonai will separate me from his people. Likewise, should not say, I am only a dried up tree. For here is what Adonai says, as for the eunuchs who keep my Shabbats, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant. In my house, within my walls, I will give them power and a name, greater than sons and daughters. I will give to him an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And the, and the foreigners who join themselves to Adonai to serve him, to love him, the name of Adonai, and to be his workers, all who keep Shabbat and do not profane it, and hold fast to my covenant. So you hear the language there of grafting and of mixing together. If you hold to the covenant, if you honor Shabbat, even the eunuchs, even the foreigners, they will be called part of my people. 
Who has the next verse? Uh, John ten sixteen. Go ahead, Bob. And other sheep I have which are not of the fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Other sheep that are not of this fold I will bring. They will hear my voice, and they will come. All right, let's go to um, Romans 11, 11 to 24. By their fall, deliverance is come to the nations to provoke them to jealousy. And if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the nations, how much more their completeness? For I speak to you, the nations, inasmuch as I am an emissary to the nations, I esteem my service. If somehow I might provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and have and save some of them. For if their casting away is the restoration to favor of the world, what is their acceptance but life from the dead? From, but life from the dead. Now, if the first fruit is set apart, the lump is also. And if the root is set apart, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, have been grafted in among them, and come to share the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. And if you boast, remember, you do not bear the root, but the root bears you. You shall say then, the branches were broken off, that I, might, that I might be grafted in. Good. By unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by belief. Do not be arrogant, but fear. For if Elohim did not spare the natural branches, he might not spare you either. See then the kindness and sharpness of Elohim on those who fell sharpness. And towards your kindness, if you continue his kindness, otherwise you also shall be cut off. So you hear the grafting, grafting language there as well, and the cutting off language and disbelief. So we're being mixed in. So before we go to our last verse, what Peter is saying here in verse 25 of Acts 3, he's saying, you guys are the, get ready, because there's going to be a stream of nations, a stream of the Gentiles coming up to want to worship in this place, like you've never seen before. And you have to be ready for that, and you have to be agents of the presence. Bringing people into the presence is what he's invoking there. Let's go to the last verse, Ephesians 2. In whom you also are being built together for habitation of God in the Spirit. Uh, read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who was made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, 
thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting the death to death, the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. You see the language there. It doesn't sound to me like God is nullifying what he did with Israel and starting plan B, right? No, it sounds like he's inviting all the nations to join plan A, and that is Israel. You guys are welcome to the table now. You have cohabitation. You're grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. You're being built together like a house and a dwelling place for God. You're being mixed together with the seed of Abraham, we could say. The Nevechum. It doesn't excite you. I don't know what will. And we're sitting here 6,000 miles away from this event in Acts 3. Where that happened, we're sitting here. We just processed a Torah scroll around the room. We're, I had Hebrew class this morning. We're learning about the prayer times. We're learning about the structure of the temple, the, the, the geography of Israel. Why? Because it's a move of God. He's restoring all things. I'm excited. Let me close with a couple questions for you guys. What's glaringly obvious about this story that we missed? What did we miss? And what does it mean that we missed it and that it didn't happen? Here's a hint. This man has been here for 40 years, give or take. Yeshua has not healed this man. How many times has Yeshua gone to the temple in his life? Probably dozens of times. Walked right past this man. Why is he not healed? Now I want to hear from you guys. Why do you think Yeshua, the healer, did not heal this man? Why did he have to wait? Yeah, I saw your hand at first. That's just a beautiful answer. Thank you. She said, maybe God didn't want that man to be healed yet until it was the right time for him to be healed. Wow. That is a very profound answer. Thank you. What are some other answers you have, Bob? I'm wondering if uh, Yeshua didn't heal him because he wanted Peter to be strengthened by mm. raising him up and God giving him strength to heal him. Yeah, so maybe he wanted Peter to experience that, the healing, and to strengthen Peter's faith, perhaps. Yeah, Michael. Maybe the man's heart was not ready, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know the man's heart. 40 is a uh, biblical number. Yeah, 40 is a biblical number. Yeah, time of testing and trial, yeah. Huh. You know, this is a, a good lesson for us 
Everyone knew this man, it said. Right? He walked in and everyone recognized this man. Perhaps God was waiting for the perfect time to receive the greater glory through that. And then Acts 4.16 says, because of that, they could not deny that it was a miracle. Interesting. I think so God will receive a greater glory. It's a proof for me of the continuation of healing through the apostles. So if Yeshua ascends to heaven and healing stops, there's nothing that we can do. There's no power we have. There's no healing. There's no prayer for the, the sick. There's none, none of this. But because we see the evidence of that in Peter and John healing a man, we therefore, 2,000 years later, pray for people to be healed, do we not? And we see that happen in our lifetime. Healing continues through the power of God. But also, I think she hit the nail on the head when she said that God has a specific timing for things. And there's people in the room that can attest to that, right? That you have prayed and you have prayed and you have prayed. And you have sought his face. You sought an intervention. You sought a move of God in the situation. And you're like, why isn't this happening right now? And then it happens much later. And then you're like, aha, now I see why. And it is so much more impactful, so much more meaningful. And it gets him so much more glory, right? And it is undeniable that it's a move of God when it does happen. And some of you in this room right now are maybe praying for that thing. And you're like, why are you not moving in this way? Why are you not moving in this way? Be encouraged because he has a timing for it. And he will receive a greater glory for it. What? His timing is perfect. His timing is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Some of you, it might be like the salvation of a loved one or a child or something. Or it might be uh, uh, waiting for a child. Or it might be, you know, like a, a job to open up for you or something like that. There's these things that you are praying for. And I can only tell you using stories from scripture that God has perfect timing and when it happens, he will get a greater glory for that. And trust me, trust me in that. But lastly, we should view the temple as the garden of Eden. We've talked about that before, how the temple is the garden. And there's all kinds of symbolism in the garden that's supposed to remind us of that. We as Yeshua followers are agents of the redemption and the new creation. So put that together, we should be inviting people into his presence and not driving them away. So as Peter and John walk up to the temple, they're like, hey, stand up, come with us into the God's house. Are we doing that within our spheres of influence? Or are we driving people away? You know, I, I spoke at a church Wednesday night here in town and they asked me to speak on Christian holidays and Christmas in particular. And I just opened up for Q and A and they were asking me some fascinating questions which tells me they want to learn about some of these things. And I was sharing with them all about the biblical holidays and the origins of Christmas and all this stuff that they had no knowledge of whatsoever. But I did it in a way, I hope, and I really, I feel like I did, that their hearts were open to receiving the truth that I was sharing with them about God's, the beauty of God's holy days. And I mean, even to the point that they were, they were, they were saying, you have to come, you have to come back. You have to come back and share more. I'm like, I'll see, I'll see how my schedule looks like, but you have to come back. You know, they're saying you owe us one more week. You owe us one more week, you know? And I was really honored by that. But when you do things in a way that invite God, you know, sometimes I think we in the, the messianic world, we get a nugget of information and then we take that and we weaponize it, right? I'm going to, I'm going to turn over some tables. I'm going to, I'm going to whip some people. God forbid, man. Don't do that. Don't do that. 
Be Peter and John walking up to the temple and say, you know, I don't have any nuggets of information for you right now, but I've got, I've got some healing I can give you. We have to remember that the messianic faith is not centered on what we believe, but our faith is centered on what that belief produces. Does that make sense? I think sometimes our center of gravity focuses and we think about what we believe and it's all head stuff, but our faith should be centered on people should talk about Dothan Messianic Fellowship in these terms. Yeah, they celebrate the biblical holidays. I want to know more about them. Yeah, they go and they send teams of volunteers to do things in our community. Yeah, they send groups of people to East Africa. They send finances to, to places in the ends of the earth. To, to help people. They show compassion and mercy. That's, that's how I want our community to talk about us. Our belief producing action, not just about our belief. Here's what I don't want them talking about us. Oh yeah, they, uh, they don't do this, or they eat that. They don't eat that. Or they, they, they worship on Saturdays. You know, that's just like, it's foreign. I want them to talk about us because of the, the, the actions that flow from our belief. And if there's one fault in the messianic world is that we know a lot about what we believe, yet we often use it to close the doors of the temple and not open them wider. There's three types of religious people that we can take away from this story. Three types, which one are you? There's the passerby, that guy for 40 years, been passed by a lot of people, has he not? Then there's a person who throws a coin in the cup and then walks in. Then, and the one I strive to be, is the healer, who says, stops, talks to them, greets them in the name of Yeshua, and restores that person back to the way Yeshua wants them to be. Now, that's hard, because it takes a piece of energy from me. It takes a piece of emotional energy and strain on me to be able to do that. But to have the empathy to look at a human being and say, you're, you're broken, you're hurting, you're, your unforgiveness is causing you to make bad decisions in your life, whatever the case may be, fill in the blank. I want to stand here and be an agent of healing for you in this moment so that you can draw closer to God and you can experience the embrace and the love of my master. Three types of religious people. I want to be the last. With that, let's do a little bit of Q&A. I'd like to close out with some questions and answers. But uh, Greg, I see your hand up first. So what Greg is saying, for those who couldn't hear, this was not just a physical healing. This was a restoration of mind and body. Greg recalls being in the hospital for 27 days, was it? And how he had to teach himself how to walk again after that 27 days, let alone 40 years, what it would be like, and how much of a mental process it is in, additional, in addition to a physical process of learning to walk. But any other questions or comments about Acts 3 or about anything? Yeah, Julia. Um, I thought it was really cool how the core portion about Joseph and his reaction to his brothers mm. correlated with 
Peter and John's reaction to these men in the temple. Yeah. Uh, in the, the fact that in both things that they're both addressing people that had meant harm. So they, he, they've just watched these people decide to crucify Yeshua. Yeah. And they walk right in and their comment to them is, we understand that you didn't understand what you were doing. Yeah. But that had to be done so that we could receive salvation. The same mm. talk that Joseph gives to his brothers. Yeah. And then they offer salvation to those men. They offer the gospel to, to them. They don't like cut them off or tell yeah. them you made this choice and now you can't. They treat them like brothers. Yeah, yeah. Into, to the kingdom to join them instead of against them. So for those who couldn't hear Julia, it's really a point. When, when Joseph is approached by his brothers and then Joseph reveals his true identity to his brothers, he says, don't worry because what God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Yeah, I, I you know, that hurt me that you betrayed me and all this stuff, but I see the bigger picture in this. And she's saying that Peter and John are doing the exact same thing. They're saying, hey, don't worry, you killed the author of life, but what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And he's offering you forgiveness for that. And it's just like when Yeshua was on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. When Stephen is about to be uh, stoned, not to steal someone's thunder, uh, but when Stephen's about to be stoned, his last breath, he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So that should be our mantra as well when we are persecuted or when we're attacked or we see sin in the world. It's, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When we experience injustice in our life or in someone else's life, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then offer that salvation, that gospel. So good, good thought. Anybody else? Yeah, Nicholas. Yeah, that is a really good question. So he's asking if if all those passages point to the idea of people being being grafted into the nation of Israel, how does that jive with, how does that, um, how, how do we, I guess, reconcile the idea of Israel not intermingling with other people? Well, basically, the idea of Israel intermingling with other people was because the other people were Canaanites who were... Um, idolaters first and foremost, uh, debaucherous, um, all kinds of crazy practices, child sacrifice going on. So the, you have to put that commandment in context of not intermingling and not marrying with other families of the nations in which you're possessing. Of, okay, if um, it makes sense for my son then to not marry someone who is an idolater. Does that make sense? And that is echoed throughout the New Testament of, of not being unequally yoked. So in other words, if someone pledges their allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are in a sense grafted in as a spiritual co-heir of the nation of Israel. And therefore, they are part of that, part of Israel. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, I would discourage my sons, and you should discourage your children, that if the person they are marrying does not have the same worldview and not pledge their allegiance to the, the creator of the universe, that they are not on the, on the, the docket for marriage. Does that make sense? So I don't know if that answers your question, but Brian, do you have something to add to that? Yeah, um, well, we see that with Rahab and uh, Ruth. Mm -hmm. these, these were non-Jewish people, but the heart was that your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. So in that case, they are, mm -hmm. and they are believers. 
Well, and that's a good point too, because Rahab, who, who was in the city of Jericho, right? Uh, she gets counted in the lineage of Yeshua, in the genealogy of Yeshua. So in other words, Nicholas, um, uh, Israeli uh, citizenship, let's call it, is never, was never and should never be based on one's DNA, but rather the condition of one's heart. Does that make sense? So often we look at it physical terms that connection to the people of Israel is a matter of DNA. So, but I think the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has always looked at the condition of a man's heart. Um, I hope that helps you. But that's a very good question, though. Thank you for asking it. Any other questions? No? Yeah, Brenda. So Tuesday, I was baking some cookies and doing some stuff, and I said, well, let me take some to the neighbor's house. Yeah. Friends with. It's a couple as well, kind of like our yeah. age. And the, they say, oh, well, come on in. <laughs> come on in. And I'm like, no, no, no. So as soon as I come in and I sit down, I only want to sit. First thing out of her husband's mouth was, are you and Bob Jewish? <laughs> I'm like, no. And then they started just asking questions and where do you go to church and don't the I mean, it's just kept on yeah. asking. Well, they see it's on Saturday morning, taking a bottle and giving it Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they know that we don't celebrate Christmas and yeah. things like that, you know, so. Yeah, so you kind of stick out a little bit. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So she's saying when she went to deliver cookies to a neighbor, uh, the neighbor was saying, uh, asking, are you guys Jewish? And she's like, no, we attend Dothan Messianic Fellowship, yeah. which, yeah, it's, it's funny when I explain that as well. Um, like at this church Wednesday night when I went and spoke, they, they ask, I get this question a lot, can I visit if I'm not Jewish? <laughs> I get that so often, I'm like, of course, yeah, actually most of our congregation is not Jewish. We're all non-Jews who want to walk out, uh, you know, the, the, the Torah, want to live and, and understand and, and, and embrace the Jewish roots of our faith. But yeah, it's funny how they, people, for some reason, it's easier for people to put you into that category and say, oh, they, they're Jewish, therefore they do these things. But when you say, no, I'm not, and I do these things, then it's like, wait a second, no, you don't fit in a box. How do, and it's very much like the first century. I don't think it was easy for the, the authorities at that time to fit us in a box, per se. They see the mezuzah on the door. Oh, okay. Come in, you have to put in. Oh, nice, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, very neat. All right, we'll take one more question, then we gotta do a Kiddush and break for lunch. But, Carol. Oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. You didn't know what to say. Yeah, very, very long story short, Christmas started on December 25th because that was already a well-established Roman holiday called Saturnalia. Yeah, and Constantine, when he converted to Christianity, he needed to merge his kingdom and unify his kingdom. And he took this already well-established holiday that was Saturnalia in Rome, but reupholstered it and made it about Christ. And um, then declared himself Pope and all that stuff, which is really interesting. But yeah, that's that's a very long story short, Carol. That's how it came, and because the Protestant world, even in North America, is a are spiritual descendants of the Roman Catholic world. That's kind of how. But did you know that Puritans actually outlawed the observance of Christmas in America? 
It wasn't until the late 1800s that, that Christmas became a thing in United States of America, um, thanks to Coca-Cola. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Patrick. First legalized in Alabama. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Puritans, they disliked everything to do with Christmas because it was a very debaucherous holiday at the time. And you just got a picture like a, a lot of Roman Catholics celebrating Christmas, and there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of shenanigans. Yeah, Brian. Just Well, and here's, here's the thing, too, and we're going way over time, but this is very important. When we take these elements of truth, like that's a historical fact, it's a truth, um, we've got to be careful when presenting the people who have a lot of emotions attached to these kind of, kind of days and these observa um, observances. Um, and we have to do it in a way that doesn't speak in, in a condemning way, um, but also speaking truth. Um, and it's important we do that, but... This time of year is one of the, the worst times of year, the worst time of year to talk about this kind of stuff and to expose those kinds of things with people um, if, they, if they do observe those holidays. And really, it's none of my business if they do. Um, and, you know, it's, it, unfortunately, Christmas has turned into this very um, materialistic, idolatrous kind of thing that's just like full of people going into debt and buying things they don't need. Um, but there are people who really do it with the right heart and the right, the right spirit. And you just have to have discernment and how to, how to navigate those issues. But yeah, I want to really, for me and my family, we just want to do biblical things and do things that are grounded in truth and God's word to where I can look at my kids and I can say, yeah, Santa Claus is not real. <laughs> or I can look at my kids and say, yeah, he was not born on December 25th. And that's not a news, that's not a news flash to you. Um, I can say he was born during the Feast of Tabernacles and I can prove it to you through the Bible, which I did Wednesday night with these people. Um, so just stuff like that. You want to be... Delicate in that. Yeah, uh, let's take one more. Crystal, I'm going to go with you. I was just, when you mentioned Santa, that's, when I hear people say that, especially people that you know have some form of Christian belief, and then they tell their kids about Santa. Yeah. I actually know someone who began to question their faith because they began to question what their parents told them to be true and what not to be true. And it's tough, yeah. We want to speak truth and truth only to our children. Yeah. But guys, if you have any other comments or questions, I see more hands up. This is really good. I'm so thankful for this. But if um, people are hungry and their eyes are rolling in the back of their heads and stuff, so let's, uh, let's say Kiddush and then we'll close out with your honor and we'll eat food, okay? But I'll be sitting right here. Come see me if you have more questions or comments you'd like to add.